Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for this glorious celebration of the Reformation it comes from Romans chapter 3. That was our first reading for today. I'm going to be showing some of those verses up on the screen, but if you want to see those verses in context in God's Word, I encourage you to open up a Bible and you can turn to Romans chapter 3, which is found in our church Bibles on page 941. 941. I want to begin by asking you a question. And this is a question that we really don't ask in the church anymore. Is a question that was popular years and years ago as part of kind of some evangelism programs back in the day. It's a question that maybe today we consider a little heavy-handed, but I think it is a question that is very good for our text and our purposes here today. And the question is this. If you were to die tonight, are you sure, are you certain that you would go to heaven and be with Jesus? If you were to die this very day or this very night, are you sure, are you certain of what your eternal destiny would be. And if you are certain, then why are you certain? If you were to stand before God Himself in all of His holiness this very day, what would you say to justify yourself before a holy God? What would you say to justify yourself before him and let me just pull back the veil just a little bit if your sentence begins with the word I you've completely missed the point if your sentence begins something like well because I have done this or because I have done that you have missed it all together are you sure are you certain of your eternal destiny it's this question of assurance and of certainty and struggling to have assurance of one's salvation which was the very essence of the struggle that Martin Luther had as a young man. As the church taught, Jesus Christ had suffered and died for you and had risen for you and all of God's grace and all of the righteousness of Christ was waiting there in the heavenly realms for you. But in order for the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ to be applied to you and literally the word they used to be infused within your soul to be put within you, you had to earn it. 
There were things you had to do in order for God's grace to be infused within your very soul by your good works, by your religious obligations, by attending the mass, by your private confession and absolution and works of penance where you would in various ways punish yourself to work off your sins. And there you see God's grace would be put within you and infused within your soul. But there's a problem. We still have sin. And every time we sin, a little bit of that righteousness of Christ, a little bit of that grace, can we say it this way, leaks out of us. It's like a leaky bathtub. You keep filling it up and it keeps leaking right out again. We keep having to work and keep having to work and keep having to work and do all of these things. But every time we keep sinning, the grace goes out and doop, 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 it goes right out. And then we got to go back and get another refill over and over and over and over again. And Martin Luther was left always to wonder and always to question whether he had done enough. This is what led Luther eventually to the monastery to become a monk. And the woodcut that we have there on the screens is actually a depiction of Luther in the monastery. You see how gaunt and withdrawn he looks. It's because his time in the monastery trying again to absolve himself and to merit the merit of Christ and to earn the righteousness of Christ. He oftentimes would deny himself food. Or deny himself blankets in the bitter cold of the German winters. And he would have his practice, not just weekly, but of daily confession of his spin sins. Sometimes spending hours and hours and hours in the confessional booth trying to remember every little sin he had committed. Because in order for a sin to be forgiven, it had to be confessed. In order for it to be confessed, it had to be remembered. And he was in constant turmoil, never having assurance of his salvation and of his eternal destiny. And some of you might say, Martin Luther, lighten up. But you see, Luther understood what the church taught at the time, that it ultimately was on you. And Luther understood who God was in all of his holiness and his glory and perfection. And Luther understood as well about who we are and our inability. This is what Paul is talking about. If you've ever read through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Paul is speaking about our inability to ever earn our own salvation, whether we are not religious or whether we are super religious. And this is what he says here, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Paul is quoting some Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, some of the Psalms, which says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. You might remember the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the presence of a holy God. And then Paul says here in verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, that by works of the law, that is by our own morality, by trying to keep the commands of God, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is a universal negative. That is true for all. 
No human being can be made right, can be justified in the sight of God by our own works of trying to keep God's law. And then verse 23, where Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, the unreligious, the anti-religious, but the super-religious. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of Scott Abel, the glory of Pastor Nate, <laughs> the glory of our neighbor down the street, the glory of that guy we did bad things we heard about on the internet. It's the glory of God. And to fall short of the glory of God doesn't mean we can almost get it and we're just inches away. To fall short of the glory of God means there is an infinite chasm which separates us before God because of our sinfulness. We just don't understand how bad off we are because of our sin and how holy and awesome and glorious is God. We just can't conceive of it. This is what Luther understood. And he wrestled and he wrestled. And the church was teaching, you can do it, you can earn it. He says, no, I cannot. So eventually Luther was sent from the monastery to a new university that opened up in the German city of Wittenberg. And there he was to be a professor and a lecturer on the Word of God, on the Scriptures, on the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament and the Greek Scriptures of the New Testament, delving into the original languages and studying God's Word in a very deep way. And it actually was this very passage that's before us, Romans chapter 3, where Luther, years later, wrote, he described it as his tower experience where for weeks and weeks and weeks he was studying these very words. Weeks and weeks of wrestling and struggling with what God was saying here when all of a sudden the light all of a sudden began to shone around him and he realized the answer. And he said, in that moment, it was as though my soul and I had been lifted up in and through the gates of paradise itself. And what is it that he discovered? It's what would be called in theology the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification, Martin Luther said, is the foundation upon which the church stands or falls. If the doctrine of justification stands, the church stands. If the doctrine of justification falls, the church will fall and crumble around it. So what is the doctrine of justification that so changed Luther's life? And as he said, it was as though he had gone through into the gates of heaven itself, finally at peace and at rest and at joy. It's what Paul says here in verses 23, 24, and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, that is to satisfy the holy demands of the justice and the wrath of God to be received, how? By faith, verse 28, 
For we hold that one is justified how? By faith apart from works of the law. Honestly, could Paul have made it any clearer? We are justified not by our works, but simply, beautifully by our faith. Now, what does the word justified or justification mean? Justified, justified, justified. A simple way of remembering it is this, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Justification, it's probably good to know what it isn't to understand what it is. Justification is not a process over time. Justification is not a process where you are trying to merit the merit of Christ and there's always this flux. You're filled with God's grace and righteousness and then your sin pushes it out and you're never uh, understanding or have any assurance. Justification is not a process. Justification is a declaration that God makes. He pronounces. It is a legal declaration that God pronounces over you and he says over you, not guilty. And not only not guilty, but he says over you, you are righteous and holy. We just sang it, didn't we? Thy strong word bespeaks us righteous. Thy strong word declares us to be righteous in his sight. And it goes on to say, bright with thine own holiness. If you could see yourself, if I could see you the way that God sees you right now, I might be tempted to bow down and worship you. So glorious and beautiful and holy. My daughter is going to remember that. Dad, remember what you said in the sermon? If you could see your real self how God sees you, Beautiful and holy and glorious. And how does that happen? Well, again, Paul says it's by and through our faith. What is faith? Well, it's knowing stuff with our brains, but faith ultimately is trusting. It's a relationship. It's the empty hands of faith, as I so often say. What is faith? It's saying this, I know that I cannot do this on my own. In fact, I can't even add a thimble full of my own righteousness or work to this. God, it is 100% your work, and I turn to you, and I trust in you. And how does that come? Paul says it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in his blood on the cross. Redemption. What does that word mean? If you redeem something, it is that you are paying a price to buy something back. This would have been, in Paul's time, in the first century, examples of what he was talking about all over the place, especially in the marketplace, especially where they bought and sold human beings, slaves. And a person could go, and for a hefty price, you could pay the price, and you could pay the sum, and you could free that person. You could, you, you could pay the price for that slave and then set them free. That is what Paul is saying God himself has done for us in Jesus Christ. And here's the sad reality. We sell ourselves into slavery. We sell ourselves into the slavery of sin and all these petty and little things that we trade our soul for so often. And Christ has set us free by 
his blood. Some of you say, but that's terrible. God demanding sacrifice. I mean, that's primitive and obscene. It's like the ancient gods in the Greek pantheon. Maybe you remember the story of the Iliad and the story of Agamemnon. And he was on his way setting sail to Troy for the Trojan War. And Agamemnon had done something to upset the gods. And so they were blowing a wind against him and a wind against his ship. And he couldn't set sail and he couldn't go to Troy. And so Agamemnon takes his oldest daughter and sacrifices her to the gods to appease their wrath. And you say, see, that's, that's Christianity. That's the same thing. Oh, no, do you not know? The gospel is the exact opposite. It is, in the gospel, it is God himself. God offers himself as the sacrifice for you because he wants you to know you are loved you are forgiven and he wants you despite whatever it is you have done no matter how long ago it has been he wants that shame and guilt to be rid of you and he wants you to be his now some people say as well as we wrap up here Okay, great. We're saved by grace and through faith. I mean, even our faith is a gift of God. I mean, then what's the motivation to love one another? What's the motivation to love and serve our neighbor? Don't you see when you know that you're saved by grace through faith in the work of Christ, it sets you free to really begin to love and serve your neighbor, not because you're trying to earn your salvation and out of fear, but because God has served you. Now you want to serve others. Martin Luther and his wife, Katie, when the plague came to Wittenberg, Germany, the Black Plague, many of the leaders, many of the rulers, many of the officials, they left town. Any of the people who could afford to leave town, they left town. Martin Luther and Katie stayed in Wittenberg during the plague, even when Katie was pregnant. Loving and serving those who were sick, sitting by the bedside of those who were dying. And it was sometime after that, we don't know exactly when, but sometime after that, that Luther wrote the words of the hymn that we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that final verse, different translations of it, of course, but the final verse which says this, Take they our life, goods, fame, child or wife. Let these all be gone, yet the victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. Martin Luther, how could you have such great assurance and certainty and to be willing to risk your life and even your unborn child in the plague? How could you love and serve your neighbor? Because he had the certainty through the doctrine of justification that we are saved not by our works, lest any man should boast, but we are saved through our faith alone, by God's grace alone, in the person, in the work, in the cross, in the empty tomb of Jesus. Jesus Christ alone. And his soul had already been set free. If you were to stand before God this very day, this very night, 
and to justify yourself before a holy God, what would you say? If the sentence that you are preparing in your mind to say to God begins with the word I, you've completely missed the point. That sentence begins and ends. Its totality is in Christ. Jesus Christ in Him alone. And that's why I so often will end a sermon by saying, to Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.